Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. Drive time with Elliot, Timothy, and Chen Chen. Only on Money FM 89.3. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is drive time with Elliot Danga, Timothy Go, and Chua Tian It's now time to turn our attention to headlines out of the United States. We're looking at Myanmar's internal conflict that's triggered by the military coups that happened just over two years ago. That'll be the focus in the upcoming trip to the ASEAN region this week by a top US official. We also have the March 20th to 24th trip to Indonesia and Thailand, which will be the latest in a series of high-level visits by US officials to the region region, especially to to Jakarta. This comes as Indonesia nears the fourth month of its year as chair of ASEAN. So we're going to take a look at uh, all of this, uh, plus uh, the Myanmar situation with Steve Oaken, Senior Advisor, McLarty Associates. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon. Great to be back. It's been a while indeed. Let's uh, take a look at the upcoming trip to the ASEAN region by uh, top U.S. State Department official Derek Sholat. What will you be looking out for? Well, look, this is one of a string of visits where you see the United States working with Southeast Asian countries and governments and businesses when it comes to diplomacy, when it comes to military, when it comes to economics. I chaired a meeting last week with the uh, Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade in, in Bangkok talking about how there can be increasing integration economically uh, from the business community. You have, you know, Kassler coming on this visit to talk more on the diplomatic side. So it's just all part of how the U.S. is approaching Southeast Asia from a holistically and in trying to help solve the problems like in Myanmar and trying to create opportunity from an engagement perspective and then also to work on things like climate risk and in, 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 in what's happening in Southeast Asia. Mm. The U.S. is also keen to think on the uh, worsening crisis in Myanmar with, uh, with us here in ASEAN. Difficult question, Steve, I admit. What will it take to keep Myanmar from the dangers of being a failed state? Well, look, I mean, I think that's the better question, less for the U.S. government and more for the governments here. What is the Singapore government going to do and the Malaysian government and the Indonesian government? And that, and then this solution has to come from ASEAN. So clearly the U.S. wants to support. I think that's what, you know, the council is going to talk about what can be done in terms of sanctions where you try and isolate the junta, uh, isolate those who are committing all those atrocities there, but not harm the people. But the political solution has to come from within ASEAN. It's been how many years since the five-point plan was issued that has never been really followed up on. So hopefully with, with Indonesia as the ASEAN chair, as you mentioned, the U.S. can try and support ASEAN as, 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 a, as an association and as, as bilateral countries that have to get involved. Mm. Should the U.S. provide, uh, it, again, you know, you, you talked about what Singapore is going to do with this. Then how much of a U.S. influence comes into play? And I asked that question in light of the kind of balance that we need to find. It's almost Star Wars-ish, you know, <laughs> when, I ask, when I think about it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, you know, the balance the U.S. has tried to draw is how do you isolate those who are committing the crimes? How do you isolate the junta but not punish the people of Myanmar who are suffering and suffering greatly? And so that I'm sure how you how you put economic sanctions to continue that pressure is going to be part of what the U.S. can do. 
but the political part has to come from the region. And so that, that's that balancing that has to get done that you mentioned. Yeah. As if the U.S. wasn't busy enough, uh, you've got China's President Xi Jinping heading to Russia to visit for peace. How are we expecting the United States to continue to react towards this? I mean, signs that uh, President Xi is going to push for peace talks between Moscow and Kiev. Uh, imagine if he succeeded where the U.S. failed. Well, we, there's, well, we all hope that we get peace, yeah. but nothing that the Chinese have put forth leads to indicate that they've put forth a serious peace plan. You have, mm. you know, Xi Jinping going yeah. to meet Putin for three days. How is, you know, how is that going to be seen as an honest broker between, between China and Ukraine? You could see coming out of this visit increasing economic support from China to Russia, which is enabling uh, Russia to continue this, this, this war of aggression. You have Xi Jinping going to visit Putin right after he's been, you know, been deemed a war criminal for, yeah. for the, you know, the tragedy that's happening to the Ukrainian children. So I think a lot to watch on this visit, less about is peace going to break out, but could the situation get even worse were China to provide lethal aid to Russia in violation of sanctions that are ongoing right now. Hmm. Also, that issue of uh, the international arrest warrant uh, for Putin on war crimes uh, charges. Could you could you explain this a little bit to us? I mean, the significance of it, or, or of course, I mean, what happens from here? Well, I mean, you, look, I mean, you, you could say, well, there's no jurisdiction. Putin's yeah. never going to go to a country. It doesn't really matter from that perspective. But I think there's certainly a a moral judgment that people will have to take into account in okay. when they are going to be meeting um, with Putin, if they're going to continue to do business with with those businesses that are affiliated to the Russian state. And look, it has happened in the past where an international war criminal has been tried and in, in convicted. And of course, that was was Milosevic about mm. 20 years ago. Mm. So it, it has happened in the past, but it is an indication that this is not where we should just have some type of truce or stalemate, which seems, or it's not truce, a ceasefire, which seems to be where China is headed, where you have to really get the aggression to stop and to and to pull back um, from from what Russia has done and is doing. Yeah, uh, that's a tricky one. Talking about jurisdiction, uh, I want to switch gears to talk about former U.S. President Donald Trump's looming indictment. Um, could we could we talk a little bit about the potential charges that could arise? And I think <laughs> the bigger issue being, can that actually stick? Will he actually be charged? Okay, well, will he be charged with can it stick are two different things. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so let's do the can All right. be charged All right. part of it first. So during the campaign... When he ran for president, Stormy Daniels, uh, who is a, a porn star, mm. said she had an affair with Donald Trump, demanded money um, in, in exchange for her silence. She had been rejected from for that request from Trump and, and, and Trump-affiliated people until, if you remember, like that famous Access Hollywood tape yeah. came out in which Donald Trump bragged about, uh, you know, sexually harassing women. And after that, the concern of the Trump campaign was this could really hurt him if this, you know, allegations of having an an extramarital affair with a porn star could come out. So all of a sudden they found $130,000 to pay for Stormy Daniels' silence. That in and of itself is not a crime. But when you lie about where the money 
is coming from and where it, it, it came from from Trump's organization, not from Donald Trump's personal account, reimbursed through his attorney. And it's to advance yourself in a political campaign that can also be illegal. And so yeah. that's the charge. But it's being done under state law which has never been done before. So it's clearly something that happened that shouldn't have happened, but whether this charge will stick if, if, if the indictment is brought is a different question because it is a rather novel legal theory yeah. in state court as opposed to federal court. Yeah, that, that is very nicely tackled, uh, Steve. Uh, we also got to know Michael Evernetti throughout that case. Of course, it all went downhill for him last year as he's, uh, well, there you go. Uh, that's history. Well, but maybe, maybe yeah. he'll be down on Trump's You never know. <laughs> That'll make a good documentary, Steve. <laughs> That'll make a good one. Although, you know, the possibility of a former president being arrested, that's, that's going to be a historic first. I mean, you know, even though it's after he's finished his term, in the US, how big is this when you consider the economic landscape and the other problems that they're trying to deal with right now? You can't, as we joke around a little bit about this, you can't underestimate how huge this would be to have a former president indicted who happens to also be running for president and exactly, yeah. the 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 you know like the adage was always no one's above the law but now republicans are rushing to defend the former president the speaker of the house says this is an outrageous abuse of power the former vice president you know mike pence who has criticized trump for his role in january 6th is calling this a politically charged prosecution the the you know governor of New Hampshire who's a you know pretty anti-Trump moderate you know the Republican uh, is said that this is just going to build sympathy for Trump and make his election more likely uh, in 2024 than it would be otherwise. Are there going to be riots? Are there going to be you know in, in the streets like we had you know outside the courthouse in New York like we had in the Capitol on January 6th? So this could be really destabilizing and it's a very serious issue to watch both for historical purposes, but also for economic purposes as to what this could do to the economy, not just in the U.S., but globally. Yeah. Steve, we're going to take a trip down memory lane here to cap things off. Uh, Today marking the 20th anniversary of U.S. missiles striking Baghdad. You were working for Bill Clinton, I believe, back in 1994, if I'm getting my dates right. Uh, let's let's talk about this uh, 20th anniversary of uh, the Iraq war. What are we looking at now in the United States? What exactly is happening as far as uh, U.S. presence is concerned in that area? Well, I mean, I think, you know, like, there's a couple of things. One is a look back is, you know, was this worth it? What did we yeah. do it for? Yeah. What lessons can we learn from what occurred? Mm-hmm. Um, so that is is part of, of what's going on. The other part of going on is, you know, you look at all those, the people, you know, certainly if, if you're in the U.S., the Americans who died, but if, if you're in Iraq, the Iraqis who died, all of those people who died, and you say, what did they die for? Is, yeah. was, was it worth it? Could there have been another way? So there's a, some of that soul-searching that's going on, honoring those who, who have been injured or, or killed. Yeah. And then part of it is what, in terms of these lessons learned, should a president have the authority to go and do this without congressional votes mm-hmm. um, going forward? What type of authorization should there continue to be? And so there's these authorizations that were issued for the Iraq war that are still being used. They were used by Donald Trump. 
They've been used by Joe Biden. Should you get rid of those now? Mm-hmm. So a lot in terms of looking back and, and, and honoring those who served and then also what should we do to prevent yep. um, some of the mistakes that were made. Just a quick one uh, on what you were talking about, the Iraq war authorizations. Uh, obviously, Senate took a step uh, last week in repealing those authorizations. Is there enough support for this? Look, this is kind of one of those questions historically that go back and forth in the United States. Ah. Who should have more power in foreign affairs? Right. Should it be the Congress or should it be the president? It used to be the Congress. It's gone more and more towards the president and, you know, starting in Vietnam mm. and, then, and then moving forward. And this is Congress saying, hey, we've got to claw back a little bit. Um, and this is something that this this power of authorizing military force, we're a co-equal branch. We should be able to do this as much as, as you, if not more. So it's a historical debate that's, that's playing out. And it's, it's maybe coming a little bit back, back towards the Congress after we've seen what's happened in the past 20, 30 years, and that the U.S. is becoming a little bit more questioning on how much engaged should it be as the world's policeman. All right. I've been speaking with Steve Oaken, Senior Advisor, McLaughy Associates. Steve, as always, do appreciate your time. Take care and have a great Monday evening ahead. Thanks, you too. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.